0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation. You got to listen in every Tuesday to stay up to date on the most recent medication therapy topics. Game Changers creates awareness about pharmacotherapy and clinical practice changes that can significantly impact pharmacy practice. Every Tuesday, a new episode of Game Changers is published on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening, and always remember, the pharmacist is the hub of healthcare. Today, we live at a unique point in human history
0: where data is becoming the new currency. Beyond oil, dollars, and social status, data is emerging as one of the most powerful and consequential
1: currencies around the globe. Technology computer processing, cloud storage, and artificial intelligence are empowering these data to transform zeros and ones into insightful and even profound realizations about almost every aspect of our lives. I'm John Nasta. And this is Futuredose.tech. Technology, pharmacy, and better healthcare delivery. By creating more efficient, higher quality concierge-like pharmacist services, we can transform from the pharmacist of yesterday into the future provider of pharmacy tomorrow. Futuredose.tech is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, Pharmacy Podcast Network listeners. This is Dave Orkowitz. I'm the host of the Future Dose Tech Pharmacy Podcast. And today on my podcast, I'm so excited to have Marinka Zitnik. Marinka is Assistant Professor of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. And she has a focus on machine learning and medicine. And prior to this, Marinka was Postdoctoral Fellow Computer Science at Stanford. And we actually initially collected based on a paper that she wrote during her fellowship in which she used, uh, I'm going to sound really smart here, a graph convolutional network uh, to model polypharmacy side effects. So this model looked at protein-protein interactions. It looked at um, drug-protein target interactions, and it was able to predict side effects, even for combinations that have never been used in patients so as far as i know this is the first method to do that and this is important because um, it's important because the knowledge base that we have now to identify drug drug interactions is currently limited to things like you know clinical studies post-marketing data pharmacovigilance maybe case reports so it's and it's just not not possible to test all combinations of drugs that are being administered to people so this is sort of a neat way to think about how to make those predictions computationally. Um, so my first question, Marinka, and thank you for 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 being here. Do you how, how do you get involved with applying machine learning in medicine?
0: Yeah. So uh, first of all, uh, thank you, uh, David, for inviting me here. It's great to be here with you today and reconnect after after a while uh, and chat about opportunities that AI and machine learning is um, offering in the space of medicine and healthcare. Um, so actually, I'm I'm trained a uh, computer scientist, but I've been excited about um, really complex, challenging problems where um, computer science or machine learning, in particular, can can help. And I see that uh, biology and medicine in one such domain where we really need to uh, model data or questions at the systems level very often represent this complex data uh, across different. across multiple scale going from molecular interactions, as you have mentioned before, in the context of drug combinations, bringing together data about how drugs work, what are mechanisms of action, and then all the way up to uh, various interactions between diseases at the individual level and then interactions between between patients or individuals at the population level so I, I think really for many problems in this space we need to model them as really complex networked systems and if we adopt this view then um, then very quickly we see that we have very large data sets very large systems that we need to make sense of, um, of and 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 I think that mach- that these questions are one of the most exciting areas uh, where machine learning can make an impact and and so since my days where I was still a PhD student I was always thinking about how can we use these algorithms that we are developing to make an impact in the world. And and so I was really fortunate to have the chance to create partnerships and collaborations with um, experimental biologists or clinical researchers um, that that, uh, that essentially enabled me to see how the algorithms that we are developing can help make impact in biology, make impact in clinical
1: research. uh, so, how spe- how specifically did you get interested in polypharmacy and drug drug interactions?
0: So that actually started while I was still at Stanford, and I was I became involved in Stanford's part translational research program. So that is a stamp, that is a international center that is housed at Stanford. Uh, that um, does a number of different things, including um, including running some clinical trials for drug repurposing, as well as working in the interface of uh, science and entrepreneurship. And so I became involved with that center and attended weekly meetings. And I, I've noticed that there are these uh, recurring questions that are appearing that very often related to the notion of drug combinations and, and, and polytherapies. And since um, that kind of uh, stimulated me to start asking questions about why like, why why are why, are poly, uh, why are drug combinations so challenging? And at that point in time, I was working on a drug repurposing project where we were um, repurposing individual drugs uh, for the case of prostate cancer and schizophrenia. And very soon it was clear that um, that in Repurposing individual drugs might not be the optimal scenario, and so um, because simply there is this limited space of drugs that one can explore, and so the natural question was then to ask to 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 starting about combinations of drugs, and and that really uh, immediately. Um, are, um, became very interesting for me as a computer scientist because the space of possible combinations of drugs is so large right even if you look at just pairwise combinations of drugs which is what we did at that point in time and still many models do let alone higher order combinations of drugs so that has immediately motivated me about can we develop now computational tool like an AI algorithm that will prioritize combinations of drugs in the sense that can we, can we generate ranked list of combinations such that those at the top of the list would be most promising and and would uh, have to, to lead to positive uh, outcomes in, in downstream experiments or downstream investigations, right? Because it's simply, as you've mentioned, not possible to just go and, and test each and every possible combination of drugs, even if we kind of limit ourselves to the drugs that are used in one specific disease areas, like say, let's say 10 or 20 of drugs, still with the number of combinations, pairwise combinations or combinations of three or four or more drugs just grows so quickly, that's just impossible to experimentally. Um, um, sweep and go to all of them. So we were asking, okay, that's a great opportunity for algorithms. So how can we design this ranked list of of drug combinations so that those at the top of predicted lists are most promising hypotheses for downstream experimentation, downstream investigation by by our collaborators and partners at that time.
1: We're going to, because I know that you've worked on some of that recently as it relates to repurposing meds for COVID, I wanna to get to that in a second, but getting back to the the drug-drug interactions. Now, what was, I'm curious, what was the, the knowledge base that you used to feed into the algorithm to, to identify, say like this drug uses this or this is a mark, this drug is uh, a substrate for this protein. Like what what, how, what was the base data that you used? now yeah, so
0: that's a great question. So what we, the- uh, what we did was we constructed a large knowledge graph or knowledge network. So this is a um, a data representation that brings together a variety of different data sources. So altogether, we used over 20 different data sources going all the way from public databases such as Drug Bank or Drug Central, um, FDA Orange Book, um, to um, various resources for um, that. Contain perturbation signatures of drugs, meaning that um, meaning that those are gene expression profiles that indicate how does introduction of a uh, of a drug into a particular cell line change the expression of uh, of genes. So we took all the data, represented as a large knowledge graph. So that's an object that why is it uh, that that allows uh, that is that is essentially machine readable machine uh, readable way to, of representing the data which is very important to be able to run any algorithms but the way to think about is is that we have this structure where we have um we have different nodes or vertices which are very uh, which represent meaningful biomedical entities so what we had we had all drugs approved on in the us uh, that were represented each of them a separate node we have uh Information on how those drugs bind to target proteins um, and available data on off-targets effects. Then we had information on how those proteins interact with each other, that allowed us to uh, capture um, the propagation of biological effects through the underlying PPI network. Then we also had a, a large amount of side information. So that what that entail, entails is information on protein perturbation signatures, as I mentioned before. We had information on drug chemical structure, um, information on then uh, uh, indication data for drugs, so um, that um, what diseases those drugs are being prescribed for, as well as information from FAIRS data on, and post-marketing data on adverse side effects, adverse events of drugs. Um, and so all that, altogether, that was a large knowledge graph that allowed us now to take all these different data pieces into account while making predictions about potential um, um, interactions between combinations uh, of drugs.
1: So let me try to distill this down to like a picture, right? So is it fair to to sort of picture it as like a 3D graph where you find those, you can pinpoint those two drugs and then measure the distance between them and that will quantitatively in a way prioritize the possibility that they would have that type of interaction when given together? Is that sort of how to think about it?
0: Yes, so that's that's a great way to summarize it. So traditionally, right, so it, we are not the first to study drug interactions, right? So people have been interested in studying drug interactions for many, many years. And so traditional approach using the systems level of thinking was to look at the pair of drugs, look at their target proteins, and then try to make sense whether um, how, what is the overlap between tar, between the set of target proteins or how far away those targeted uh, targets are in the underlying signaling or PPI networks and try to correlate that with the probability that the drugs will interact. And so the challenge with doing that is that if you look at many, many pairs of drugs, um, they simply, they don't share any targets or they share many targets but the problem is that target data is very incomplete. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing this over, calculating those overlaps, in, a, in in this more slightly naive fashion, what the AI algorithms allowed us to do to measure these distances, as you have mentioned, in a very flexible way, um, and, and essentially optimize the models such that uh, they would say that, uh, or, or train it in a way that for drugs that we know they interact, those distances would be very small. For drugs that there is information they do not interact, those distances between the, the corresponding drugs would be very large. And so mm-hmm. that's how the model was trained, right? And so once the model was trained in this way, uh, after it was trained, then we were able to ask the model, great. Now that we know the model can perform well on known data, on existing drug interaction data, how let's apply it to new combinations of drugs that the model has not seen during training and see if the model can generalize well. So if it can make accurate predictions for new combinations of drugs.
1: So cool. Um, There are a couple of terms that just um, as a pharmacist and um, as someone who likes to share knowledge, there's a couple of terms that came up a, a number of times in that initial paper. They were the terms encoding, decoding, and embedding. Do you think you could succinctly sort of explain that to the sort of, uh, what's the best way to put this, the, uh, the average pharmacist out there or how, that, how those concepts relate to the output?
0: yes so that's a great point as well so let me try to do that and i will start with the notion of embeddings so and and why do i want to start with the notion of embeddings because this no this principle of embeddings is the core principle of today's machine learning algorithms so um, no the, the idea is the following. The idea is that um, we take our original data set. In our case, we, were taught, we discussed before this about this three dimensional graph structure representation. And what the algorithms do, they take that input, the three dimensional graph as input, and they embed it into some, uh, into some different the low dimensional space into some um, artificially designed uh, optimized space that that can really yield good good, accurate predictions. This process is known as the embedding process. So the idea is that in the knowledge graph, as we discussed before, we have these nodes by uh, vertices representing different kinds of entities, drugs, diseases, proteins. So for each of those entities, we will specify some, a vector, some number, uh, perhaps 128 numbers, real numbers that, that we call embedding of that entity. And, and so the idea then is that if two entities, say two drugs, interact, uh, and we know that they interact, we want those, in, those embeddings of the two drugs to be very similar. Meaning to be represented by by points in that dimensionals in that embedding space that are close together, and so if two drugs don't interact, then we want their embeddings to be very different. That's really that relates to what we were discussing before. That for drugs that don't interact, we want their distance to be large, and for drugs that interact, we want their distance distance of their embeddings to be small, and so. That notion of taking the original data and then compressing it, representing it into some compact space where each entity is just a point in that space, that process is known as encoding process. Essentially, the way to think about it, it's a way of compressing the data. The initial data is very massive, maybe it's very large, and we want to compress it effectively, we want to encode it, into some low dimensional embedding space. The whole idea here is that if this encoding process is successful, then it effectively means that the only way the encoding process can be successful is by the model learning some useful patterns. Because because when the, the data is being encoded, it's being represented by a much smaller data representation. So it naturally loses some of the information. Mm -hmm. And so to represent the data effectively, the only way for the model to do that is not to memorize each of the data points, but essentially to learn pattern and then just save the patterns instead of the real, each individual data point. And that's exactly what we want in machine learning because Mm -hmm. those patterns are generalizable Um, um, generalizable concepts that we can then apply to new new, uh, predictions. And so the process of going from an input data to this embedding space is known as encoding. We are essentially compressing the data. Decoding is the opposite thing. Once we have the compressed representation that is encoded by the algorithm, then we can take that compressed representation and we can decode it and essentially get back the original data, but hopefully in such a way that that it's much more complete. It's it's essentially, it's it's less uh, uh, noisy. And um, that decoding is known as then making predictions Mm -hmm. because we can take the embedding space and decode it into predictions
1: very cool and thank you for that uh, i i completely got that and i'm sure that the rest of my audience will get that as well I, I think that you did a really nice job explaining those complex topics in a way that's like really easy to understand and the word i was looking for was civilian because i guess i consider myself sort of a civilian in in the machine learning space um, so so what's neat about that method right um the method that you used for the product that you initially came up with was called decagon the one that can predict polypharmacy side effects so that predict- predicted harmful outcomes, right? But, but as you mentioned earlier, it could also predict potentially synergistic effects that could be a net positive for the patient. And even though, like, even though COVID has been around for like what seems like forever, right? <laughs> time is moving really slow. Um, but it's still like a, a relatively a very new disease in human beings, right? That's, so, so there's still a ton more to know about like, what medications maybe potentially repurposed to treat COVID. So could you talk to me a little bit about your research in this area in terms of repurposing, looking to repurpose drugs and prioritizing drugs for for either in vivo or in vitro research?
0: Yes, of course. So back in March, uh, we, um, my lab became part of a COVID-19 task force together with researchers, a few other research groups at Harvard Medical School and, and Brigham and uh, Women H- uh, Hospital. And we were wondering whether we can employ a decagon-like models um, to prioritize uh, in drugs and identify promising drug opportunities for COVID-19. And the main challenge of doing that using AI algorithms is that there was lack of data on COVID-19, right? So that Mm -hmm. was a disease at that point in time we never seen before. There were very few um, pieces of information that one could use to anchor or supervise the model, right? Mm -hmm. So and 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 sort of because of that, uh, none of the traditional methods um, that were based on network biology, network medicine, um, were were able to really work for for with for COVID nineteen because there is just there was this obvious question how to even represent COVID nineteen in a computerized fashion in a way that's amenable to computational analysis. So at at that point we were we were very fortunate that um, colleagues from UCSF led by Nevan Krugans lab uh, have um, identified. Um, a set of 332 human proteins that are targeted by uh, by the virus. So we thought of those, uh, pro- those uh, proteins, um, as those human proteins as um, computerized representation of, of COVID-19. And so we used that um, to um, to anchor our, our algorithm so that it was able to make predictions for COVID-19. And the way this was done is, again, we constructed a very large knowledge graph and we trained uh, um, an algorithm um, um, that was decagon-like in the sense that it adopted, it was using similar principles of algorithms known as graph neural networks today. But those that algorithm was trained, optimized, its parameters were set on by looking at all drugs in the, in the US and approved in the US and um, around 10,000 different diseases. And so after the algorithm was trained on the data and was able to reliably predict indications on those drug disease pairs, we then um, used it and asked the algorithm can make predictions for COVID-19. And so we did that with our collaborators in a matter of three weeks. So between uh, March 23rd, where we, where we formed that task force, and April 14, we worked very hard with collaborators meeting every day to really pull together the data and, and run the algorithms and generate predicted lists and trying to make sense of them. And, and so we, at that point in time, in, in April, um, we decided that the the predictions generated by the algorithm are really, really good are relatively good. And so it would be great to make um, uh, To make progress with the project. So the first thing we did was to go to clinicaltrials.gov and see whether can the model um, Predict those drugs that are currently studied in clinical trials. So that's a very weak way of validating <laughs> the data. Why? Because uh, because of all the challenges related to clinical trials, and especially COVID-19, that's not really, the fact that drug is studied in a clinical trial does not mean that it works for COVID. It simply is an assessment of medical community that it might be promising.
1: It's like the assessment of their bioplausibility based off somebody's hypothesis exactly. as well as their ability to run a clinical trial.
0: <laughs> exactly. But we just wanted to get some sense whether the model can at least make those, capture those uh, drugs well. And it really it it worked really well. So then we said, okay, that was just our you kind know, of in silico uh, phase validity test. <clears throat> and and so we did that in april and, sin, and between april and june, uh, june we engaged uh, with um the BU um, laboratory for uh, which which is a national infect, uh, laboratory for emerging infectious diseases and those <clears throat> And collaborators in that laboratory took our top 1,000 predictions, uh, predicted drugs, and they first uh, tested them um, in Vero E6 cells, which are African monkey cells across a broad range of concentrations. And doing that experiments, which uh, yield very good results, so we were able to identify um, that 77 drugs. Uh, that were predicted by the algorithms that show positive experimental response in the context of inhibiting viral growth. And that was really exciting, Uh, but of course that is only on African monkey cells. So since then, we uh, have performed uh, additional, or our collaborators have performed additional um, experiments on human cells, and we are now in the process of wrapping those results. Um, but the, the main point of being a computer scientist working in this area is that uh, the algorithm yield led to an order of magnitude better um, heat rate uh, in, than what would be possible with classical models. So, what I mean by that is the output of the algorithm was a ranked list of drugs. And those, again, at the top of the list were meant, those drugs at the top of the list were meant to be most promising opportunities for repurposing according to the algorithm. So it turned out that if collaborators took only our top of the list, then the yield was 10 times greater so the heat rate was 10 times better than if they would use a brute force approach, just trying to just test all drugs in, in, in that way. And so that's an example of a power of AI algorithms that to expedite and accelerate uh, this process of, of in, in that case, uh, identifying therapeutic opportunities for COVID
1: absolutely so it it, you know it essentially was it's a way to prioritize the work of researchers right it's it's helping them point them in the right direction so they can do and i think i believe in the paper at the end you i didn't realize you were even doing cellular studies even within monkeys or or cell human cell lines i think i I think you acknowledge that that needs to be some further at least the most recent paper that i read um, to write. It's, it's a way to prioritize. What, what I thought was very fascinating about the, that specific article was uh, I had a, there was a couple things. The first was that, I, I think you mentioned that it's an algorithm and it's based off a of decagon, but I read it as four specific data pipelines that you ended up aggregating together in a way that created a, a prior prioritized score. So to me, it was sort of like four different methods. What I thought was interesting about that was first I thought it was like, just it's talk to me about your thought process for how you came up with those four different pipelines. And this is getting back to more of my civilian, and this is what civilian comment and why this is so exciting to me is like, I know about machine learning. I've taken classes on supervised machine learning, but some of those pipelines I never even, I didn't know existed or, or knew, Oh, I wouldn't have thought of, how did you land on those four particular, specific methodologies and then it almost seems like you had a group of like a think tank that got together how do we solve this problem thought of different ways and then figure out a way to link them together does that sound right
0: yes that's that sounds right so the goal of that project like typically in machine learning what we do we develop one new method and then we test and evaluate it and try to understand its failures and success methods Uh, success modes, but that was not the case here. The goal here was, let's do the best we can do to solve this problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so that often means that we have a variety of different methods and approaches that exist in data science machine learning to tackle the problem of drug repurposing. So we were asking ourselves, well, each of those methods has some um, advantages and some disadvantages, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. we actually analyze that. And for some for some drugs, um, then certain class of methods performed much more, much better than other methods. So instead of just taking a single method and just say, oh, we just use that one, we wanted to, to say, well, we don't want to do that. We want to get the best possible, the, the most accurate possible prediction list and that doesn't mean that I would just be obsessed with one single algorithm that I would be developing or someone else would be developing. So, so the, the idea was because there was a huge team of, uh, of researchers to, to, to look at this problem from different perspectives. And so we had four different uh, pipelines or conceptual way of looking at these large COVID-related networks. Um, those were based on Decagon style of embedding models, uh, more classic network medicine model uh, models and diffusion walks. Each of those pipelines has produced a number of pre- uh, predictions, mm-hmm. <clears throat> a number of ranked lists of drugs, and then we had an algorithm that fused those m- those in- predictions written by individual algorithms into a single overall priority list of drugs, and kind of that was then the the final outcome that we shared with experimentalists. And here really when another thing that I'd like to to point out is we really wanted this this was not a classic project in the sense that we were sharing all the data in real time both publicly as well as experimentally. So that means that in April, we put out the first list of predictions. So we put out the first preprint, and then we updated it, the predictions as well as preprints every few months. So in June, in August, uh, just adding more results um, uh, and, and ex- describing the findings that uh, that we found. So it was really a first uh, collaborative effort of multiple different groups where we wanted to say we. Where the goal was to solve the problem rather than mm-hmm. just pick up a single best model that might work well on some drugs, and instead sort of that, led to this notion of aggregating predictions returned by different algorithms. And the whole conceptual idea: why would you want to do that? Is uh, the <laughs> um, is the wisdom of the crowd effect, mm-hmm. right? So, so it was really we have these sort of different predictions generated by variants of algorithms on the, on the same data. And the goal was that by aggregating, fusing those predictions, doing some kind of consensus uh, estimate, we will get predictions that that are on average more accurate. And, and we tested this notion, and it turned out to indeed be the case that the final priority list was more accurate than any of the individual, a list of predictions re- produced by any uh, individual algorithm.
1: I thought that was a really neat aspect of the paper, and would it be fair to say that because trying to read it in between the lines was that when I work with data, honestly, it's fun for me. Was that fun? It looks like that. I, was that? It looked like you got to use some amount of creativity to be able to bring that stuff together, all those different pipelines.
0: <clears throat> yes, it was. It was lots of fun. First, um, it was very different than. I'd say regular research projects where we typically don't uh, need to work under such compressed time scales. So it was in that sense it was very different. It was it was really um, an, an instance of a truly collaborative work, right? Mm-hmm. So where it was we were all motivated by the same problem and, and trying to really deliver results, good results quickly. And so in that sense it was it was lots of fun. It was really um, collaborative work between scientists, where all the barriers were dropped in the sense Mm -hmm. of, oh, whose whose code is that, or can we share this code with that person, or that data Mm -hmm. set with some other person? It was really, we had joint data repositories, joint code repositories, and then everyone was making and contributing to that. And so because of that, we're able to make progress very quickly. What would take months of... Work what's possible to do in weeks or even days, right? And then on a daily basis, go to experimentalists and say, "This is our predictions of pre- predicted list." And then they asked us, "Why did the algorithm put that drug high in the in the list?" And we went and we had some uh, recent new algorithms based on ex- explainable AI that allowed us to pinpoint what part of the data the algorithm was using for prediction. And we showed that to our collaborators, and they provided feedback. Which we were able to integrate in the machine learning loop and so on so it was really close collaboration uh, of, of scientists from so diverse backgrounds
1: that is definitely one of the silver linings and I've heard that from many people across different industries is is the collaboration has greatly accelerated uh, because of covid and also data sharing has become more and more uh, more and more common which you know from my perspective and Working with people across the country in terms of like managing drug shortages, it's been very valuable to have that cross collaboration and you know all working towards the same goals. So hopefully we can keep that up.
0: Absolutely, I, I would really hope that that will in some way continue to to exist and, and grow because it was it was really great to see how some of those data silos were, were kind of broken down and people have seen that it's it's okay you can do great science and still get get published but just Sharing the data um, and results and and, our, uh, and predictions as soon as you have them, and 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 be open to the feedback that you can get from the community. Um, and I, I hope that that will persist and will continue to promote this notion of open science and really not not only open data but open code that is reusable and and kind of friendly to for others to use.
1: And build. Uh, one last question related to that project is, could you explain the connectivity map data set, CMAP?
0: Yes, so the connectivity map data set, or CMAP, is the resource that is being uh, maintained and developed uh, by the Broad Institute of, of MIT and Harvard. So what uh, that data entails in, in is it contains information uh, it contains perturbation signatures of drugs. So essentially, and, and that is really cool and, super, and, and and great to think about because um, it, it contains information about how, what is the activation of genes and how active they are in a particular cell line. Um, in, in so let's say healthy uh, state and then how that in healthy state, then in disease state, and then how does the activity of genes changes when we administer a drug under a particular dosage in a particular environment? So the way to think about is, of course, administering a drug. A drug will bind to its targets. It will change the activation of its targets, as well as it will cause a cascade of some downstream effects. The way this is can be the way that can be quantified on, on is or measured, is to look at the activation of genes before the drug was administered and after it was administered. And so if we do that comparison, we can see what are the genes that were perturbed by the activation of, of drugs. And that's useful for many, many different questions, right? It, you can imagine it can be useful for identifying off-target effects of drugs. It can be useful for identifying, uh, for drug repurposing um, to look for complementary perturbation signatures. Imagine, like you would say, you would take a drug and its perturbation signature, you would see, well, w- well, you would take a disease and see what, how does disease change activation of genes. And then you would look for the drug that would cause change in exactly the opposite way, right? So if a drug, let's say we take gene A, and a drug would a disease would I'm really simplifying this this process just to make uh, the the concept perhaps clear. Is that a, a disease would affect a particular um, would alter the gene and would alter its gene expression. So with drug you would want to fix that. So if a disease decreases the activation of gene, you would want to find such a drug that would increase the, the, the activation of gene. So that would ha- have a, a complementary effect. And so. Connectivity map is this rich resource that contains lots of the lots of those perturbational signatures of drugs in variety of different biological contexts, And so in the context of COVID project, we use it as one of the um, As as one of ways to to make sense of the data to see uh, to, To 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 look at the drugs before we went into experimental validation. And see whether the drugs and the perturbation signatures correlate with tissues that are known to be more affected by COVID-19. Does it correlate with um, um, Also with, uh, with uh, uh, proteins that are attacked by the virus. So it was really useful resource for us in, in, that, in that space.
1: Perfect segue into my next. I just have a couple more questions. Perfect segue though. So when we think about drug activity, you mentioned gene perturbations and measuring activity before or after, essentially how systems change over time, right? Based off of inputs. And people are complicated, disease are complicated. And in my opinion, where medicine has gone wrong historically is, and the human mind does this all the time, is trying to apply a one-to-one relationship to cause and effect. So if you eat a burger, you're gonna have a heart attack. So then we say, oh, you had a burger, you have high cholesterol. So that means if you, take a, if you take a statin, a drug to reduce the chances of having a heart attack, then that's, you know, you're not going to have a heart attack. But in reality, there's many complex factors, or this term has come up many times, thinking about biology as a system perspective. And this is why I think your research is very fascinating to me, is, is it is it has the possibility to take in many of these different factors and weigh them specifically. So I'm thinking about um, let's say taking each f- feature per se, and in, and in, in seeing how each independently contributes to risk of disease. So I see sort of the future of precision me- medicine being having the ability to integrate many features such as the microbiome, the genome, transcriptome, phenotype, lifestyle, to help us answer specific medical questions at the individual level. So like, what are some of? Can you are you familiar with any sort of current methods that are used to? implement diverse types of data sets in order to answer medical questions?
0: Okay so yes I'm I'm, I cannot agree more with what you just said and and it's all about I think looking at these multi-scale representations that allow us to integrate data from the gene level to the lifestyle or behavior level and Mm -hmm. I think only by doing so we can answer some of the some questions for complex diseases that, that that are not Mendelian diseases cannot be explained soluble by alterations at the gene level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the models, in, in many ways, this, then the methods used for these kind of problems are known as data integration, data fusion models in, 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 in data science, in, in machine learning. They are primarily based on. Um, Nowadays, very much on the notion of knowledge graphs or networks that can connect these data across the scales that can go from genes to diseases, then from diseases to environment, and have these kind of interactions between gene and environments between uh, between diseases and environments, between diseases and aspects of lifestyle that an individual has. Still, I think we are there are several challenges that prevent us from realizing this vision of precision medicine in particular at the personalized level right so all predictions that we're that that and projects that we were discussing today they were predictions at the kind of global systems level right so they were not individualized or personalized Mm -hmm. and so that certainly needs their applicability and one of the the challenges is is of course the lack of data the second challenge is that personalized data is very or individual-level data is available in electronic health records. And there is this gap between patient-level data which exists and lives in electronic health record hospital systems, and essentially molecular data that is that is primarily available on model organisms, cell lines, and exists in kind of biomedical research institutes. Mm-hmm. And there is this gap between patient data and, and research data that we are trying to close. Um, not just my group but entire field actually and, and lifestyle
1: too and their fitbit data their exactly their exactly. their di- dietary data their sleep patterns etc
0: and the, the problem the challenge is really with such large number of data points it's very easy to find spurious associations right as you mm-hmm. have mentioned and so how can we move them away from spurious associations from just correlations to causal models. I think those kinds of perturbation data sets or, or notions of how perturbations change behavior of the system are a very good way towards going the direction of really causal, mo, uh, causal mechan- to understanding causal uh, mechanisms of drugs, so understanding mechanisms of drugs, understanding really um, um, causes of diseases
1: where do you see this field heading in the next like, five to 10 years in terms of, sort of breaking down those silos and having more complex sets of data to work with and integrate together?
0: So uh, I, I think there are a few challenges that need to be solved, one certainly in the sense of um, bringing, closing the gap between patient-level data and biomedical research data that is generated in academic research labs. I hope that that will lead to more personalized, individualized level predictions. The second point, I think it's really important, is uh, for, this, uh, for AI algorithms, which today they have demonstrated some promise in, in a number of different domains and, and applications relative, relevant to healthcare and medicine. There, is still, there are still many challenges that we need to solve to be able to apply and use those methods in a routine way. So the question then is really how to aggregate these algorithms into existing clinical or research workflows, right? So right now the way we are doing that is essentially, oh, there is this, um, AI machine learning researcher developing algorithms, generating predictions, and then sending back and forth Excel files with predictions to collaborators and then going (laughs) back and forth like that. So instead what we want to have is these automated AI workflows that allow the main scientists uh, to actually interact with the AI system, to ask queries, get predictions, being then able to say, what data explain that prediction? Why did the algorithm make that prediction? Because problems in medicine and healthcare are high stakes decision making mm-hmm. problems. And so it's not enough for the AI algorithm to just return a single one dimensional point of prediction, say, oh, this drug will work. That's like that's so naive in a way. It's not actionable. So we want really precise prediction that would say not this drug might work in a specific disease context under these dosage and circumstances and, and the particular context. So that means that what I hope that will happen in the next five to 10 years is that this AI workflows will be, will be more truly integrated into scientific Discovery pipeline and will allow them to more readily interact with domain scientists. And I think there's lots of opportunities here for explainable AI, for models that go beyond simple point wise estimates, but really can generate actionable hypotheses that more readily translate downstream experiments.
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, at the end of the day, this bench or in silica research needs to figure out a way to be actionable, needs to be actionable and needs to be translated into into you know, bedside care. And um we're, you know, we're a little ways from doing that, but definitely the methods that we talked about today are you know in the right direction in terms of thinking about you know perturbations of systems and, and how those perturbations can make predictions about you know towards things that are, are actionable. Um, so i love this conversation this is very exciting stuff for me thank you very much for for being on today and listeners be on the lookout for uh, marinka's work and if you have any questions feel free to reach out to me and i can certainly get you in touch with marinka if she has uh, if she has the time between all these millions of different research projects so thank you again for being here of
0: course thank you david for inviting me